0: This church should be fun, Amen. but if you don't fall off the stage. You can turn your Bibles this morning to a familiar passage. We're going to be roving through the scriptures this morning. We're not going to have that set passage that we uh, sit down and exposit. We're going to move through an anecdotal story this morning. So I encourage you, if you have that Bible, whether it be uh, in, your, in your hard copy Bible or your iPad or whatever that is, great, go ahead and be ready to scroll or turn the pages as need be. I also would love if you got that cell phone to check and make sure it's off at this point because when the worship is blaring, no one's going to hear it, but when there's just one voice in the room, we certainly will hear it, and we have some business to do with the Lord this morning, and so make sure that is off. If you labor striving for the right, you shall wear a robe and crown. What a great promise this morning. And the promise is not so much that we get to wear a robe and crown. I guess that's sort of anecdotal language. Most of us would be like sweatpants and, you know, a a hoodie, you know, be comfortable up in heaven. But the idea is very simple God has work for us to do while we're still on the earth. But when we eventually get to the place where we're by his side, he wants us to come into a place of everlasting enjoyment. I'm excited about that. I'm excited about some everlasting enjoyment. And that's that's heaven. God's got that in store for us. That's what we're talking about. But not until our work on this earth is done. You know, Ephesians chapter 2, verse uh, verse 10 says that you and I were created in Christ Jesus. We're created in Christ Jesus for good works, which he has created in advance for us to do, which he's determined uh, before we were even born that we would do those works for him, that we would toil, if you will, that we would strive for him on the earth. problem is, Most of us are about as faithful to that mission day in and day out as we are to flossing. You know? We all know that we should. How many of you know that you should floss? How many of you floss daily? Uh, some and, Yeah, like three of you, and the rest are lying. And so, no, we know what we should do, but are we really compelled and striving towards and, and, and is our priority towards what God has called us to do on the earth? The problem of faithfulness to what God has called us to is a major problem in our church today. And when I say church, I mean holistically, but I also mean on a, on a very personal level. We know that we have a job to do every day. We want our relationship with God to be great. I know I do, and I know you do. You want a great relationship with God. But most of the time, we just don't achieve what we're, what we're hoping for. We don't actually do that which we know should be first and foremost. American Christians have a faithfulness problem. We know what should be most important. We simply don't make it the most important. We treat God like an old best friend. And when I say an old best friend, that means that you can, you can go back on your obligations to your old best friend and they'll still be your friend because they're your old best friend. Or you can, you can push off that old best friend when things get busy and say, you know what, we're going to pick up right when we left off where, when life slows down. That's how we treat God most of the time. God, he will understand. He's my old best friend. If I have to forsake my time with him for other busy engagements, he will understand. He's my old best friend. If I have to go back on the commitments I've made to him for a time, he'll understand. He's my old best friend. What a destructive, Satan-endorsed lie. Satan desires for you to think that it is just you and God rolling along in your ever-evolving relationship to one another, but that is not a reality. Reality is there's a third party here, and it's the enemy, and he desires to put every obstacle in your path to destroy your faithfulness to the things of God, thereby diminishing your impact for the kingdom of God. Did you catch it? There is an evil third party in your busy lifestyle that desires for you to stay ridiculously busy, prioritizing everything but the things of God. It's a third party here. The truth is you become effective in the things that you are faithful to, and you become ineffective in the things that you brush off or brush aside. And there is an alarming trend in so many of our lives that brushes off or brushes aside the things of God first when things get tough or busy. Are overwhelming. Where, what are the things we should be cherishing? What is the thing that we shouldn't be brushing off or pushing to the side? It is the things of God, the things that we were put on this earth to do. For many of you in this room today, I want you to look inside with the help of the Holy Spirit and realize that your kingdom effectiveness is not just related to your holiness. Your kingdom effectiveness is related directly also to your faithfulness. It's not just what a good person you are and the sins that you abstain from. It's about the things that you're faithful to and the things that you prioritize and make first. It's time for the Church of Jesus Christ to overcome the obstacles to faithfulness that we place in our way and we allow the enemy to place in our way. And today we're going to highlight a story of a biblical hero to try to convince each one of us that the obstacles to faithfulness can be overcome. And we're going to use one of our favorite guys, Moses. Now, you all know the story. Those of you from a previous generation, you watched the Ten Commandments, right? Every Easter, it was on. You watched the Ten Commandments. For my generation, we did not watch the Ten Commandments. We thought Charlton was a little hokey. So, so what did we watch? We watched the Prince of Egypt, you know? The animated Steven Spielberg version, you know? Of this incredible story, the Israelites had been in slavery in the powerful land of Egypt for 400 years and God was desiring to bring them out of that slavery and to hew out a people for him that would be the people of salvation history, the people through which salvation through the, from, uh, to the world would come. And so what does he do? Does he use a pharaoh to set them free? No. Does he use someone of power from another empire to set them free? No. He decides he's going to go find a shepherd who lives across the desert and talk to him in a burning bush. And said, I'd like you to go and free the people. You remember the story, you all know Moses, right? And the crux of that story of the burning bush when God is speaking to Moses is found in Exodus 3.10. God says to Moses, so come, I will send you to Pharaoh to bring my people, the Israelites, out of Egypt. And I don't know that I gave Pete this scripture, but you can just read on in your Bible, verse 11, but Moses said to God, who am I that I should go to Pharaoh? Pharaoh. And bring the Israelites out of Egypt. And that's a great question. Who is he? We know that he grew up in Egypt. We know that he fled Egypt because he was involved in some manslaughter. And he'd been in this job as a shepherd for 40 years in the land of Midian. Now, how many of you have been with the same company or in the same type of job for 25 plus years? Raise your hand. 25 plus years. Now, imagine if I looked at you today and said, you know what? You've done a great job, appreciate the job you've done. You are now the president of Google. We would like you to take one of the most profitable companies in, in the world, and we'd like you to run the thing. Would you feel a little bit out of your element? I think most of us would, who's been in our job six months, a year, or five years, but imagine doing something your whole life and then being told, uh, you're not really a shepherd anymore. What you are, Moses, is a deliverer. Could you imagine? And that's why Moses says, oh, who am I? Why would you send me? And of course he runs through and we know the story of all the objections. Who am I, Lord? Who are you, Lord? What am I supposed to tell them your name is, right? He looks at God and says, you know, I I I want you to know they're not going to believe me. I've been gone for 40 years. I'm a shepherd. Why should they believe me? And then of course the one that gets preached on over and over again. I am a terrible public speaker. You do not want to send me to Egypt to set people free, right? Right? So he goes through all of these things and finally he tells God, God, I just wish you'd send somebody else. But as God often does, God convinces Moses, right? He tells Moses, you are the one. I'm going to give you three tools that you can take to Egypt with you. I'm going to give you my name, the divine name, Yahweh. I am that I am. Two, I'm going to give you your brother. You're a bad public speaker. He is not. So you can stand in the back and look cool while he talks, All right. So I'm going to give you Aaron. And three, I'm going to give you two miraculous signs that you can do. In order to allow people to believe that you have the anointing of God on you. And so, what does Moses do? He grabs his wife, he grabs his kids, he grabs his whole life in Midian across the Sinai Desert, crosses the Sinai Desert, and goes to Egypt after 40 years as a shepherd to try this deliverer thing. Well, Moses and Aaron get to Israel, they get, or get to Egypt, they get everybody together, and it goes well initially. Skip over, if you will, to chapter 4, verse 29. We're going to see how well it goes when Moses gets there. Chapter 4, verse 29. Then Moses and Aaron went and all and assembled all the elders of the Israelites. Aaron spoke all the words that the Lord had spoken to Moses. He performed the signs in the sight of the people. Okay, so we've got everything that God's told him to do, right? Look at verse 31. The people believed, and when they heard that the Lord had given heed to the Israelites, I'm sorry, the people believed, and when they heard that the Lord had given heed to the Israelites and that he had seen their misery, they bowed down and worshipped. What a great start. I mean, Moses said, who are you? Who am I? They're not going to believe me. I'm slow of speech. I'm slow of tongue. This is not going to go well. He gets there, and what happens? They go, all right. You're our deliverer. Let's worship God. I mean, they could have been thinking at that moment, Aaron and Moses, can't you imagine them looking at one another going, I can't believe that worked. <laughs> we, we just came from across the desert, did a couple of signs, you got that leper's hand thing going on, snake as a staff, you know. These people bowed down, you, the divine name, and they worshipped. That's pretty cool, this is going well. When we were standing in front of the burning bush, we thought we were toast. We thought this was it. We weren't going to make it. And here these people believe us. I imagine they thought at that moment, all right, well, next thing's up. Let's go to Pharaoh. We'll have a little dinner with him. We'll drop a few names, chat about old times, seal up the deal, and we'll be out of here by morning. Grab all the people and go. I mean, this was going well. The Israelites believed him. Now all he has to do now is go to Pharaoh, tell him what God said, and he's out of there. The three tools worked. Except we know that's not what happened. Skip a little further down. Chapter 5, verse 1. Afterwards... Moses and Aaron went to Pharaoh and said, Thus says the Lord, the God of Israel, Let my people go so that they may celebrate the festival to me in the wilderness. Stop right there. Could you imagine the Moses and Aaron fist bump right at this moment? Here's the moment that we were waiting for. Yeah, We told him, Let my people go. I'm sure they were waiting in expectation. If the Israelites are going to bow down when they see a snake out of of a staff, this is certainly going to work. What's the response? But Pharaoh says, who is the Lord, that I should heed him and let Israel go? I do not know the Lord, and I will not let Israel go. Put yourself in the moment. Could you imagine the jaw drop? I come all the way across the desert. The people believe me. I'm supposed to go to Pharaoh and say, let my people go. This is the moment of deliverance. And he says, no. Did he say no? Yeah, he said no. You know? He said, no. I imagine at that moment, Pharaoh kicks him out of the court. He goes, go back to work. Get out of here. I imagine as they were leaving Pharaoh's court, they're going, you know, we better come up with a backup plan. This thing didn't work. This thing didn't work. I can't believe he didn't let the people go. This might be slightly harder than we thought it was going to be. Well, what happens as they leave the court? Do you remember? Pharaoh gets ticked off. He gets mad. You know, Moses, Aaron, and the Lord had a plan, but guess what? The enemy had a plan, too. And it says in verse 6 of chapter 5, That same day, Pharaoh commanded the taskmasters of the people, as well as their superiors... And he said, you shall no longer give the Israelites straw to make bricks as before. Let them go and gather their own straw for themselves. But you shall require of them the same quantity of bricks as they have made previously. Do not diminish it, for they are lazy. That's why they cry, let us go to sacrifice to our God. Let heavier work be laid on them. Then they will labor at it and pay no attention to these deceptive words. Do you see the enemy setting himself up against God right here? It was not easy. Pharaoh says no, and then what does he do? He devises a divide and conquer strategy. Divide Moses and the people by making Moses look really foolish, doesn't he? And what does he do? He says, go, you have to gather the straw. In essence, you have to be a harvester and a brick maker now, and a bricklayer now, you people of Israel. You have to do twice the work. Can you imagine when word got to Moses about this? We did that. We went in there and said, let the people go, and now look what's happening to these people. It gets worse. 5.14. And the supervisors of the Israelites, whom Pharaoh's taskmaster had set over them, were beaten. And they were asked, why did you not finish the required quantity of bricks yesterday and today as you did before? And then these supervisors come to Moses in verse 21 and say this. They said to Moses and Aaron, The Lord look upon you and judge. You have brought us into bad odor. I love that. That's NRSV. You have brought us into bad odor with the Pharaoh and his officials and have put a sword in their hand to kill us. The people are turning against Moses and Aaron. And then Moses does what any of us would do, recognizing that everything was going to shambles around us, verse 22. Then Moses turned to the Lord and said, Oh, Lord. Why have you mistreated this people? Why did you ever send me since I first came to Pharaoh to speak in your name he has mistreated this people and you have done nothing at all to deliver your people. I don't know about you but I've had frustration like that in my life at times. God, why did you call me to this if you're not going to help me? You know you get your chin going towards heaven. You know the lower lower teeth come out. What Why aren't you making this easy? I moved my entire family across the desert, God. I'm, I'm doing what you told me to do. And look, you've done nothing but allow your people to be mistreated since I got here. This is a disaster. Most of us would be out at this moment. This would be where the faithfulness ended. Let's get the family. Let's get our camel. We're heading back. We're going back to Midian. We're going to take care of things over there. This is a disaster. And hopefully Pharaoh will forget that we came. Me, a deliverer. Come on. What happens here? Well, God comes to Moses in this moment. And in essence, God says to him in the beginning parts of chapter 6, Moses, don't worry, I've got this all under control. Really, God? Really? The people are turning against, this is not what Moses says. This is what I'm imagining Moses saying. Really, you got this under control. God says, this is for my glory. I am going to show my wonders through this. You're going to see my glory displayed. People will know that it is I, Yahweh God, who has delivered these people out of bondage. They'll know it's not not you. They'll know it's me. God says, go back and tell the people that. So Moses goes back and tells the people that. Chapter 6, verse 9, our last verse in this roving scriptural journey. Moses told this to the Israelites, but they would not listen to Moses because of their broken spirit and their cruel slavery. Now, if you weren't done at that point, point, you're certainly done now, stick a fork in me, I'm done, God. I'm out. I'm leaving. I've managed to alienate the same people that you've sent me to help. This is too much. Don't ask me to be faithful anymore. At least that's what I would say. Perhaps it's what you would say too. Do you know what Moses did then? Maligned by his own people, with only God and Aaron as his allies, tossed out of Pharaoh's court, not sure if he was even going to come through, God is even going to come through on his promise, without a hope, barely a prayer. You know what he did? He went back to Pharaoh. And he said, let my people go. He went back and said, let my people go. He stayed faithful to God when he could have packed up and gotten out of there. That would have been easy, but it would not have been right. You see, Moses had met the Lord, and even in despair, he was going to be faithful to him. Even in despair, Moses was going to be faithful to God. This is the number I want you to get in your head, because if you get this number, you might stand in awe for just a moment. After this chain of events that we've described in Exodus 3, 4, 5, and 6, Moses re-entered the fire pit of Pharaoh's court 16 more times. 16 more times he entered the court of Pharaoh. Do you think he may have feared for his life every single time? Do you think it was easy for him to think of his wife widowed and his children fatherless? Do you think it was pleasant for him doing this over and over and over again with little or no support from the very people he was sent to help? Yet he stayed faithful. And he went into the fire pit of Pharaoh's court. Sixteen more. Moses was a major player in one of the most miraculous events in human history because he was faithful even when the circumstances got hard. He had an impossible task, but his faithfulness to God helped see it done. And I wonder, I wonder when I look at stories like this in Scripture, Moses, 17 times into the court of Pharaoh with no support whatsoever, I wonder what you or I could accomplish for God if we had that same sort of dogged, resolute, determined faithfulness to the things God has called us to. As it is, Satan need not put wicked pharaohs or impossible odds in our way. He need only put one more non-essential thing on our calendar a sleepless night or 12, some nagging aches and pains, a test or two at school, or a project at work, and he can derail our faithfulness pretty quickly. Start trying to read and pray in the morning as an exercise to grow closer to God and watch the sleepless nights roll in. Sign up for a community day to go help people in the community with real need, and watch yourself wake up with that backache again. Commit to coming to a discipleship opportunity on a Wednesday night and watch how work gets busier or how school exams are always on Thursdays. You invite somebody to watch Billy Graham's My Hope at Your House and watch one of your kids get a cold that afternoon. Commit to be to church every Sunday, and see the rash of wedding showers, baby showers, Browns tickets, and family obligations that vie for your attention. Say to the Lord, I'm getting serious about you, and then wait for that offer to take more of your time. We think that it's just life. I say that it's the insidious plan of the enemy. We say that it's just the way culture is now. And I say, who's the Lord of culture? We are so blind to our lack of faithfulness because we expect God to make it easy to follow him. And we think that he'll understand when we dump him first because he's our old best friend and he's not going to get offended. Finish this statement in your mind, if you will. If Jesus had been as faithful to God as I am right now, I shudder when I apply that statement to my own life. Perhaps you do too. Faithfulness is key. It is key. It's something that our Lord modeled to us All day, every day was his faithfulness to the Father. Why would we think that the only thing that determines our kingdom effectiveness is our personal level of holiness? Why would we think that? Or maybe holiness or faithfulness is a subset of holiness. We could argue the semantics all day long, couldn't we? But the point remains the same. Our faithfulness in tandem with our holiness makes us effective for the kingdom of God. They go like this. But we have some stinking thinking that each one of us needs to turn upside down. We are the excuse generation, and therefore we lack effectiveness. I was too tired. I was too busy. I was burned out. I was taking family time. I needed some me time. My plate's just a little full. And at the end of all those statements is a lack of faithfulness to what God has called us to. But we all make those Time to time, frequently, or over and over again. And there are different spheres for this lack of faithfulness. You know that, that there's different spheres, if I may steal from some of the truth project ideas that so many of us went through. There's the sphere of family, there's the sphere of church, and there's the sphere of our social interaction, whether it be work or play or school or whatever. And we can show a lack of faithfulness to God in all three of those, or two of those, or one of those. But even a lack of faithfulness in one of those derails our effectiveness for God overall. So you might think this is just a pastor railing for me to have quiet time at home so that my family is, is more in tune with God. And the answer is Yes. And you might say, well, this is just a pastor railing this morning because he wants us to show up to church more frequently and be more committed to the house of God and the things of God and the work that we do from this place. And you'd be right, yes. Or he's just saying that I'm not faithful enough in sharing the gospel and living out my faith in my workplace or my school because I, the faithfulness to God when it's tested in culture, it just gets a little bit scary. And the answer would be yes. All three. There's not a specific focus for the message this morning as if we had a topic that we had to nail down so everybody would get it. It's all three. It's every aspect of our lives that we lack faithfulness in at times. And that we need God to examine us at times. Because we are only going to be as effective for his kingdom as our faithfulness allows. Faithfulness is not just about the obstacles. It's about our priorities. If a husband has to say, my wife knows she's number one. His wife knows that she's not. If a mother has to say, my kids know that I would never put anything above them. Then you can be sure her kids know that's not true. And if a Christian says, God knows my heart and he understands. Chances are that God knows exactly the state of your heart. And he completely understands your goofy priorities. Our effectiveness as individuals in our home, as people in our workplaces and schools, and as members of the body of Christ, the church that Jesus instituted, not a, some pastors. Not some elders, not some trustees, the body of Christ that Jesus himself instituted. If we are to be effective for God in these three spheres, we have to reevaluate our priorities. And we have to ask God, God, are you really, really pleased with my level of faithfulness in all three of these arenas? Not just one. Not just one. So, I have a little task for you this morning because I can tell that not a pin is dropping in the room, if you will, and that means the Holy Spirit is speaking to some hearts. If you are a head of a household today, whether you be a father or a husband or a single mom or you live alone, whoever is the head of your household, however your household plays out, you have a task this week, because we're going to be back here next week, and we're going to talk about these fears and we are going to talk about what I'm about to share with you. So if you're one of those people that I described who is the leader of your home, I'd like for you to grab a pen. And if you don't have a pen, grab it from your neighbor because it's all right to get practical in church. Find a little piece of paper. If your bulletin is not already wadded up or holding onto your gum for you, you can use that. Now, I want you to write this, but you will also find tomorrow, if you have, if you are part of the church email list, or you go to www.vlchurch.com, you will find a downloadable version of these questions for you to work through as a family, or as a household. First, I want you to ask yourselves the question and answer this, what has God called this household to? Many... Families, family units never ask this question, and so they can never prioritize properly. What has God called this household to? Secondly, what are our household's priorities in order? What are our household's priorities in order? And finally, what are the self-imposed obstacles to that list, staying cogent? You can write that however you want. I won't use the word cogent. What are the self-imposed obstacles for these priorities coming into effect? I have a feeling that the top of every one of our priority lists will be the same. Worded differently, but the same. I have a feeling. And the question is, what are we going to do about it? What are we going to do about it? What are our obstacles? Now, I will have this in a beautiful Word document for you to work through. But what you're going to do is, once you've worked through this, whether it be at lunch today or tomorrow after you have Pastor Matt's awesome Excel spreadsheet, (laughs) what you're going to do with this is you're going to put it on your refrigerator. Because you're going to make a family or a household covenant. That's how you prioritize and stay faithful. You're intentional about faithfulness. You're intentional about faithfulness. I was thinking about this as I was thinking about this commitment time because I thought sometimes you can't just preach at something. You have to have some practicality behind it like this. And I remember Dave Ramsey. How many of you have been through Financial Peace University? Do you remember he has you make a list for what constitutes an emergency that you're allowed to use your emergency fund for? Do you remember this? He says you got an emergency fund and you have to determine what's an emergency. What are you allowed to drain that fund for? And maybe this is number four to put on your list. What's a good reason to not be faithful to this priority list? They say, you're giving us an out? Yes. Maybe you're barfing. (laughs) Barfing would be an out. Okay? To some of these priorities. We're living real life here, correct? Okay? Illness, uh, horrible disease would be some outs to some of these. But I want to tell you, don't make that list long. Don't make that list long. Keep it simple. But we need a a household covenant that we all agree on. That's going to help us to stay faithful. That's going to help us to stay faithful. Next week, we'll talk about faithfulness in the three spheres. Church family, and in society. If God's spoken to you today, I invite you just to bow your heads and pray with me. Heavenly Father, we thank and praise you for who you are. Not because of who we are, but because of who you are. You are faithfulness personified. You have been so faithful to us. Faithful even to death on a cross. Lord, we don't have the strength, we don't have the wisdom, and we don't have the power to be as faithful as you were, Lord Jesus. But you do. And your spirit lives in us. And so today, even though there's a a practical exercise to do when we leave this place, we pray that that exercise would be empowered by your Holy Spirit, not as an exercise of we're going to do better, but as an exercise of the Holy Spirit working in our lives to bring about the kingdom of God. Lord, your will be done here on earth as it is in heaven. We pray these things today in our Lord Jesus's name. Amen.